Should you trust your gut? I'm Sean Ellie, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. This is a question I'm constantly asking myself, though it's usually on a subconscious level. I think this is true for most of us. We're making all kinds of decisions every day. Most of them are trivial, like what to cook for dinner. Some of them are monumental, like whether to change jobs or sell your house. But every time we make these decisions, we make them on the basis of some feeling or some evidence. Sometimes we just go with our intuition, with what feels right. And sometimes we lean on our reason. We weigh the options, consider all the factors, and follow the logic wherever it leads. A new book by Seth Stevens Davidowitz called Don't Trust Your Gut argues that our gut, or whatever you want to call it, is usually wrong. And it's wrong because our intuitions are often influenced by false impressions or dubious conventional wisdom. Stevens Davidowitz is an economist and a former Google data scientist. This book, like his last one called Everybody Lies, isn't preachy. He's not telling people what to value or what's worth wanting. He just looks at the enormous amount of data we now have about virtually everything and tells you what it says and how it squares with what we think we know. So I invited him onto the show to talk about it. We dive into some of the surprising evidence he's gathered, from what makes us happy, to what makes a good parent, to what predicts a lasting marriage. If nothing else, there's enough here to make everyone think twice before going with that gut feeling. Seth Stevens Davidowitz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. All right, Mr. Data Guy, what's your beef with the gut? <laughs> Why are you telling all of us that our intuitions are stupid and we shouldn't listen to them? Well, that's a little exaggeration, but I, I do think that it has been proven. There are just tons of studies where they compare a simple algorithm to make decisions to people's making decisions. And the algorithm beats people in a shocking number of times, predicting which teacher will be successful, predicting whether someone's going to commit a crime after they're released from jail, predicting whether a police officer will do a good job. So kind of there is pretty good evidence for data being better than our gut. And I was motivated to write this book because I'm an enormous baseball fan. And baseball has just been transformed by data analysis. It's a totally different game than it was when I was a kid. That story was told in Moneyball, the book and the movie. Using stats the way we read them will find value in players that nobody else can see. I kind of realized in our personal decision-making we kind of still are in the pre-Moneyball days where we are all just kind of winging it. So I was kind of curious, what if we didn't wing it? What would it look like? The, you call this Moneyball for life. And God bless you. You're, you're a Mets fan. Is that right? Uh, well, that, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly a Mets fan. I like the Yankees too. Wait, what? I know. What? You're not supposed to. What? I know. It's sacrilegious. My dad kind of taught me that trick that if you root for two teams, you double your chances of success. <laughs> <laughs> what an answer. Oh my God. Okay. All right. Let's get to basics here. Like, what do you mean when you say we can't trust our gut? What are you talking about? What exactly are you asking us not to trust if intuition isn't 
quite the right word. Well, I just think that it's more we should be aware of the data as we go through our day-to-day lives. So if you're opening up a business, you know, let's say you've seen a movie about a successful record store back when those were the, those were a big deal. And you say, that seems fun. I'm going to try a record store. You should know the data of every business in the United States. The record stores have the lowest average lifespan. The average record store lasts 2.75 years. Mm. The average dentist business lasts 19.5 years. Now, that has to be information that you consult when you're making a major decision like that. And I think most of us don't. Do you see any constructive role for intuition at all? Or do you think our gut, whatever you want to call it, are always leading us astray, or almost always? I'd say it could have a small role. So (laughs) there have been these studies that firefighters, if you do something in a controlled environment many times, then your intuition is able to sense things that it would be impossible to otherwise sense, such as a firefighter can sense that there's a fire even before it reaches conscious awareness or is visible. So I think there are times where our gut can be useful, but I think our gut is massively overrated. And I think people who uh, live their lives just following their intuition all the time and not stepping back to think twice, consulting with friends, consulting with mentors, people who don't rely on a more rigorous process tend to just make lousy decisions. Well, where's all this data coming from? I mean, you talk about how we are we are in the midst of an explosion of data in recent years. We just have more data than we've ever had many times over, and it has just kind of revolutionized our own understanding of the world and ourselves. Yeah, it's so much easier to collect data on just about any topic. So a lot of the studies I talk about in the book are from tax records. So you know, there's a study, Capitalist in the 21st Century, that studies the entire universe of American taxpayers and breaks down who's in the top 0.1% and the top 1%. And that's just newly digitized tax records that have been available in anonymous and de-identified form to researchers only for the past few years. So just all kinds of data sets like that, enormously valuable data sets as you're going through life and trying to understand how the world works, have just been collected or made available in the past few years that these huge topics are now open to data science. You know, I've had this ongoing argument with my wife, Lauren, who's very much like a data person. I'm not an anti-data person. I mean, who's going to come out and say they hate data? But I come from the philosophy world, and my view of science and data has always been that it can help us get more of what we want, but it can't really help us decide what's worth wanting in the first place. And so I'm just very naturally skeptical of anything or anyone that suggests that we can quantify the good life or something like that. I'm not sure that's something you're saying here, but is that something you believe that the data can do that? Well, I actually, Sean, I don't know if you remember, I was a philosophy major myself, so we have that in common. I always feel like if our lives are inefficient enough, you can make decisions that win on every possible dimension. So I talk about the data on happiness and particularly the Mappiness Project, George McCarran and Susanna Murado, where they ask people, who are you with on their iPhones? They ping them. They go, who are you with? What are you doing? And how happy are you? Zero to 100. And they built this chart, what I call the happiness activity chart. (laughs) And they found all these things like, so socializing, being with friends, really, really important. Being with your romantic partner, really, really important. Lazy activities. Many of us think, suspect 
that we're going to have a good time if we just lie in our couch and browse the internet or go on social media or play an iPhone game. And the data, when you actually ask people doing that, they tend to say they're not particularly happy doing that. So one of the big pieces of advice from this data is it's better to go on a hike with friends in nature and talk to them than lie on your couch playing an iPhone game. And I would argue that any philosophical value system you have, the hanging out with friends is going to win because the only possible way iPhone games would be better than that hike with friends is if it gives you more enjoyment. But now we know it actually gives you less enjoyment. And the hike with friends also gives you connection and time in nature and all these other things that I think yeah, it's hard to imagine a philosophical system that says sit on your couch and play an iPhone game. Yeah, but you do say at the beginning of the book that all this new data gives us, quote, for the first time, credible answers to fundamental questions. And that's a big claim. And I guess a lot turns on what we mean by fundamental. You know, I don't think any data that we have now or could even in principle ever have can answer truly fundamental questions because fundamental questions for me always come down to first principles, to value judgments about the meaning and purpose of life. And the data can't speak to that. Like I know data from okcupid.com or Tinder can tell us who's getting dates and who isn't, but that's really all it can tell us, right? I mean, I don't know that data will ever be able to tell us what makes a meaningful marriage, for example, or a fulfilling life. Do you think that's something data could actually do for us? Well, yeah, I talk about the study from Samantha Joel and 85 other scientists on predicting romantic happiness. They had data from 11,000 couples, more than 100 variables, and they said, what predicts who's happy together if you're satisfied in your relationship? Now, they only asked, are you satisfied? Yeah. They could have also asked, do you find purpose in your relationship? Do you feel fulfilled in your relationship? But I feel like all of those questions could be attacked with data. Now, it's not perfect. Again, I'm the author of Everybody Lies. <laughs> so there's a lot of lying in surveys. And right. you know, what does it mean to say you're fulfilled and feel purpose? But I think it gets to the, those questions and can at least give us clues. And I think one of the things I would hope that people took from my book is they just adjusted a little bit their parameters based on this information. So I talk a lot about physical attractiveness and that the data from OkCupid and Tinder and others, eHarmony, all these sites show that people, not surprisingly, are drawn to beautiful people. My best read of, of the evidence is there's basically zero correlation between how hot your mate is and how satisfied you are in the long term. And how is that not useful information for a single person to know one way or the other? That can't but help you make decisions. Doesn't mean, okay, that tells you exactly who you have to date but that does tell you your gut and intuition is tricking you in your search for long-term happiness. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> I guess going back to the Moneyball thing for a second, that analogy works on one level and then it kind of falls apart on another level. You know, like baseball is a game involving strategies and tactics and certainly life itself is a kind of game, but the difference is that in sports, the goal is objectively clear, right? You win by scoring the most points. So anything that results in more points is good, but in life, but in life there isn't really a scoreboard or there are many, many different scoreboards and lots of different games you can choose to play and there aren't fixed rules. So what it means to win just isn't clear, right? I 
push back against that idea, even in baseball. Please do. That baseball, it's more complicated because there's attendance, there's revenue, and there's winning, and those can sometimes be decoupled. That sometimes there's an exciting player who causes losses, but hits a lot of home runs and is really fun to root for and might help your attendance. There's short-term versus long-term. When you're deciding whether to trade a few prospects for a star player, you have to decide how much you care about winning this year versus winning in three, four, five, six years. So even in baseball, I agree it's probably a little simpler to say what the overall goals are, but there are sometimes conflicting goals. And I think the great thing about a Moneyball approach is you hopefully find an inefficiency that is so large that it is obviously worth doing. If you're perpetually single and you're trying to date only the people everyone else tries to date and you're complaining that you're always single and you know, you're a heterosexual male who's only trying to date beautiful women or you're a heterosexual female who's only trying to date six foot three handsome lawyers, then I think the data can help show that your approach to dating is massively inefficient and not serving any valuable cause. So when we're happiest, what sorts of things are we doing? Seth has got some answers for us after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right, I have a feeling the tension here will, will find its way back to the surface, but I feel like now that I've at least done my annoying philosopher pushback routine. Maybe we can just dig into some of the data you uncovered. Obviously, happiness is a big part of the book, right? And what makes people happy is a massive question. And you look at it a bunch of different ways. But just very generally, like how are you defining happiness? You know, What's the metric that you have in mind there? So the metric, since I mostly talk about the mappiness study, again, McCarran and Murado's mappiness project. Yeah. The metric is 1 to 100, how happy are you? Which is not a perfect metric. There, Even people in the happiness literature have been saying there are multiple feelings that we have to disentangle and there's feeling satisfied with life, 
versus being happy in the moment in life. But that's kind of the the main metric I'm, I'm using. So. So it's just people self-reporting their own happiness, whatever that is. Yeah, now that there have been studies that find that this is a meaningful metric in many ways. The people who say they're happier are smiling more. Their friends say they're happier. They have better health. It seems there is a lot of information in these uh, people saying how happy you are. It's kind of also, you know, I've criticized surveys. Again, my first book, Everybody Lies, was all about how we can't trust people saying surveys. But how else are you going to answer the question of whether people are happy than asking them? Okay. Okay. But how reliable are those self-reports? I mean, according to your own sort of model, right? Like people are sort of confused about the world and about what they really want. Some of those people are blinkered, are confused, right? (laughs) What I really love about the Mappiness Project, and the reason I focus so much on that one, is because they ask people in the moment how happy you are. So what are you doing and how happy are you right now? And I think that's much more reliable. What I really don't trust is asking people what makes you happy or how happy were you on your vacation last week or how much happier have you been since you've had kids? Because those types of answers, it's been shown over and over again, people just massively forget uh, how they were feeling in the moment. So the ideal (laughs) happiness measure of your life would be if you were being pinged all the time, this is how happy I am, this is how happy I am, this is how happy I am. I think all of us would be shocked looking backwards of how horrible our memories are of what actually made us happy. I'm setting the table here because we're going to dive into a lot of what you found there. But when we're talking about whether people are happy or not, we're, we're not necessarily saying they are truly, genuinely, deeply happy. We're just simply going by w- whether or not they say they are happy in the moment that they're asked. The good thing about the Mappiness Project as well is that it has 60,000 people and 3 million happiness observations. And it basically can compare the same person doing different things. So let's say I'm a guy who just has a weird happiness scale and I don't like to say I'm not doing well. So, you know, you ask me one to 100, it's always 80, 90, 100. And someone else, their scale between 40 and 60. I think it's a little hard to say, is the person between 80 and 100 really happier than the person between 40 and 60? Or do they just think of the question differently? But if the person is 100 when he's hanging out with his friends and 80 when he's sitting on a couch playing a computer game, that I think tells us a lot more because you're kind of, in many ways, correcting for any individual bias or deception. Well, what in general are the activities that make us happy? And what are the activities that don't? Okay, so the happiest activity, according to Mappius, and actually every experience sampling project has landed on the same exact finding which is that sex and intimacy and making love are the happiest activity, which is not so surprising. And I kind of joke in the book that I could imagine some jocks in high school being like, you know, why did so many teams of scientists spend so many years analyzing the data to figure out that sex is makes people happy? You know, during that time, we were busy having sex. <laughs> but uh, sex is the number one happiest activity, not so surprising. Other ones near the top are going to a museum or an exhibition, that kind of shocked me. That is surprising, yeah. I don't really think of that as a happy activity. Uh, Gardening ranks really high, theater, dance show, sports running exercise, singing, performing, so karaoke, really good, talking, chatting, socializing, bird watching, nature watching, walking, hiking, hunting, and fishing. And again, this is all from Alex Bryson and George McCarran's study on the topic. So those are the 10 happiest activities. Is it true that 
I think you say in the book that the average American spends two hours a day doing one of the happiest activities in like almost 17 hours <laughs> yeah. per day doing one of the least happy activities. Is that right? Yeah. How the hell is that? How is that so out of whack? Well, the bottom activities, being sick in bed is the worst. Working and studying is the second worst, and that's carrying a lot of weight because working, studying, we all spend you know much of our day, certainly weekdays, working, and that's the second most miserable activity. A lot of chores rank really low that we spend a lot of time doing, and then texting, email, social media is 32 out of 40, so that's right near the bottom. We're all spending a ton of time on social media now. And then sleeping, resting, relaxing is very low. So we're spending about three times as much time in the bottom third activities than the top third activities. What does that say about this world we've built, that we're spending so much of our time doing things that, according to our own estimates, don't make us happy? Not just are we spending so much time. I looked at the American Time Use Survey started in 2003. From 2003 to 2019, American GDP has just skyrocketed. I think it's almost 50% higher. I forget the exact number. And at the same time period, we haven't spent any more time in the most enjoyable activities. If anything, we're spending a little less time because we've cut out gardening a little bit and religious activity, which tends to make people happy. So uh, I view, honestly, the happiness activity chart from the Mappiness Project, I view as an indictment on modern life. Right. Certainly what stuck out for me is the top activities, many of them are old fashioned, things that have been around. You can imagine hunter gatherers doing some of them, gardening, talking, chatting, socializing, bird watching, nature watching, walking, hiking, hunting, fishing. Many of them are old fashioned activities. You look at the bottom activities and working, studying, waiting, queuing, administration, finances, organizing, in a meeting, seminar, class, housework, chores, do it yourself, Texting, email, social media, it's all these modern inventions that I think the human brain maybe is not evolved to get joy out of. You know, another interesting thing about a lot of those activities near the top is that they don't require a lot of money. A lot of them you can do for free. You just have to make time to do them, which I guess begs the question, did you find that money, that having more money makes us happier? Do you find that happiness tends to scale with income or is that relationship complicated. There's this famous idea that once you get above $75,000, you may have heard this, $75,000 in income, yeah. there's no gain to money. That was kind of a famous idea. You just need at least $75,000 income, then, then it stops. Yeah. Matthew Killingsworth, he's at UPenn, he did a study, track your happiness. He found that's not true, that there's no point at which money stops giving people happiness but it levels off. So it's always going up, but it's going up at a smaller and smaller rate. So going from $40,000 to $80,000 of income gives you the same happiness boost as going from $80,000 to $160,000 of income, which gives you the same happiness boost of going from $160,000 to $320,000 of income. So basically you have to keep on doubling your income to get the same happiness boost. There's another study by four professors, most of them at the Harvard Business School, that found that there's an additional happiness boost if your net worth gets above $8 million. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons for that is if you think of the activities that are really at the bottom of the happiness activity chart, there are these annoying things that modern life forces us to do. 
And once your net worth gets to $8 million, you really can stop doing them. So you just have a chef cooking your meals and you have a housekeeper who's cleaning up after everything. And maybe you have a personal assistant who's doing all your chores and you have a personal driver. So you're not commuting on a subway. So I think there is a point at which you really can stop doing these annoying things that make us all miserable. Well, what's the work trap? I mean, obviously work is related to money and a lot of us, most of us, if you're right, are doing jobs we don't enjoy because we're trying to make the most money that we can possibly make. What's the trap there? Well, the trap is that work is the second most miserable activity, according to Bryce and McCarran, which shocked me because I had grown up with this idea that work is where you get you know, a lot of your fulfillment and joy and purpose. But of course, there's a question, well, what do you do with this information? You can't just not work in modern society. Now, of course, you can cut back on your work. And I think you do have to question whether you're putting too much time into your work life. And my read of the literature is the number one factor that increases your happiness while you're working is liking the people you're working with. Yep. It just blows everything out of the water. Yep. So that's what you want to be thinking about more than how much money am I going to make? Where is the job even? What particularly am I going to be doing in the job? Do you like the people you're working with? So if you're hosting a podcast and you like the producer and you like you know the sound editor and you like your guests, then it's kind of not that bad. It's kind of enjoyable. If you don't like the people, no matter what you're doing, you're kind of screwed. So the data tells us there, even more than money, the people you work with is a greater determinant of satisfaction or happiness in your job. For sure. In your job and in every domain of life, the people, friends and romantic partners, that's where people get the real happiness boost from, the kind of people we choose. So uh, Mappiness had asked, who are you with? And you're allowed to say either I'm with romantic partner, friends, family members, colleagues, children. And the big boost was from friends and romantic partners and kind of nobody else. So the Harvard Business School researchers found that having a net worth above $8 million gives about half as large a happiness boost as the average person gets from being married. So being married is twice as big a happiness boost as $8 million net worth. So the money thing helps but it's kind of small and people are just everything from a happiness perspective. So spending more of your time with people you like, people you chose to bring into your life. Obviously other people can have different reads of the data. I'm just one person. And that's one of the reasons I just kind of put the charts out there so that anybody can make their own interpretation. But that's my read of the data that people are kind of everything when it comes to happiness. We also have more choices now, right? Is there a paradox there that having more choices in almost every domain of life is actually not contributing our happiness in the way that you might suppose it would? There's this famous study on the picking jams. Uh, You might've heard of it, that if you offer people too many jams, they just get frozen and don't know what to do. My understanding is it hasn't fully replicated. I think the problem is not so much that we have so much choice, it's that we make such crappy choices. If people have an option between working with their friends in a job that pays, you know, a, an okay salary and takes about 35 hours a week and working with people they don't like 60 hours a week in a job that pays a lot more, most people are going to pick the latter option. 
I just think people kind of stink at making decisions. I'd go back to the Moneyball example. The fact that the team drafts all these players that suck every time and the data says they're going to suck, but the team keeps drafting them doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the data. It just means the team's bad at drafting players and that they should be using the data. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could read it that way, right? You could read it another way. You could say maybe happiness isn't the thing we want most. Lots of other things make us tick, right? There are lots of other things that propel us. Happiness is one of those things, but it's not the only thing that we don't just simply want to be happy. We do other things for other reasons, some of which are mysterious, some of which may be pathological, but that's part of what makes us such a weird, ridiculous, contradictory creature, right? I feel like you're extremely skeptical of the data on these topics. No, no. I mean, you know, happiness was only one section of the book. No, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm always skeptical. That's just sort of my my default uh, mode, you know, and I'm just I I find it amusing how skeptical you are. (laughs) That's what they pay me for. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, we're going to take one last short break. But when we come back, what can the data tell us about how to be a better parent? That's coming up. You have a chapter in there about parenting and kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you find that makes a good parent? What does the data tell us about how to parent better? So the interesting thing about parenting is that there have been all these studies of t- identical twins, adoption studies where you have kids from the same parents raised by different families. And overall, they converge on this idea that parents just matter a lot less than we think they do. Many of us suspect that if we do the right thing with our kids, we're going to give them an amazing life. And if we do the wrong thing with our kids, they're going to have a terrible life. And I think the data suggests that's just not the case at all, that the effects of parents are pretty small. What has a surprisingly large effect is genetics, which a lot of people don't like talking about. But when you talk about a kid's income as an adult, not that that's the only thing that matters, of course, genetics play two to three times a bigger role than parents do. So the overall effects of parents are pretty small. And the thing that's striking about that is parents worry about so many things. And there was one study that the average parent faces 1,700 difficult decisions in their first year of a kid's life and many, many more decisions after that. And if a parent's facing 30,000 decisions over a course of a kid's life, even if they make all the right decisions, their kid may be 20% better off it suggests each decision really doesn't matter that much. Yeah. The average decision they're sweating about on a Tuesday evening, they're having a panic attack about, it's probably not something to really worry about. That said, there is convincing evidence from tax data. There's research from Roz, Chetty, and others that the neighborhood you raise your kids in matters a surprising amount. Okay, this is a big one. Yeah. So tell me about this. This is a huge one. What do we know about the best places to raise kids? And what does a conventional wisdom maybe get a little wrong here? Yes, it's a really clever study. They've used tax data and they've compared siblings of parents who moved when the siblings were very different ages. So one of the siblings spent the majority of time in one place. The other sibling would have spent the majority of time in another place. 
they can only measure a few things, childhood income and college they attended. They can't measure happiness, but then they could see, okay, well, what are the qualities of neighborhoods that the kids do best in? And one of the biggest correlations, one of the variables that correlate the most with successful neighborhoods was the percent of adults who return their census forms. And you read that and you're just like, what? <laughs> like, what does that mean? Census forms? What? That's not what we think of. And it's higher than student test scores, rent prices in an area, uh, how the economy is doing. And it seems like they homed in on the importance of adult role models that having successful, responsible adults in a neighborhood really helps your kids. There are a couple of other studies they did. They found that when a little girl moves to an area with a lot of female scientists, she's more likely to become a scientist herself. And they found that black boys, when they grow up in neighborhoods with a lot of black fathers around, even if their father's not around, they do a lot better. And I think just we probably underestimate the value of the other adults in a neighborhood for how a kid's going to turn out. One of my interpretations of this is that the relationship between a parent and a kid is complicated. So a lot of times your kids think you're like a total idiot, right? You know, sometimes they think you're cool. Sometimes they think you're a fool. But the other adults you expose them to, I think most kids are going to think they're pretty cool. So they're maybe more likely to follow their advice or even follow their careers than sometimes even they are with you. I mean, my son has just turned three, so we're really not that far down the road here. But the thing I hear most from parents that I know who have older kids, if you ask them what's the most important thing when they're deciding where to live, for example, or where to look for work, schools, 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 go to the place that has the best schools. That's where you want to be. That's why a lot of people go to the suburbs, you know, whatever. Is that overvalued? It's massively valued. There are a shocking number of studies that show the overall value of schools is much less than we sometimes suspect. Now, there are also interesting studies that show that a good teacher can make a big difference in how a kid turns out. But it seems like the good teachers are more spread out in schools than we sometimes think. And there are good teachers and bad teachers in just about every school. And fighting for your kid to have the best teacher in a school is probably more valuable than getting them to a highly ranked school, which again, a whole bunch of studies have kind of converged on the fact that the traditional measures we've used for school quality seem to not matter all that much. So I think parents just looking at a ranking of schools and raising your kid in the school that ranks highest is probably not a great path. You know, one reason that a lot of schools tend to rank highest is because they attract students who are likely to do the best. So there have been studies of, for example, elite schools in New York and Chicago, where you take one test. And if you score above a certain score, you're eligible to go to that school. So Stuyvesant in New York is one such school. And there have been so many successful graduates of these schools that there's a big correlation between going to, say, Stuyvesant and having a great life measured in many different ways. But that doesn't mean that Stuyvesant caused that outcome. It could have been because so many smart people chose to go to Stuyvesant. And they've done studies where they've compared students who scored just above and just below the test score. So if you think of someone who scores just above the test score, maybe they just 
had 10 minutes of extra sleep the night before, and they just got above the cutoff, and someone had 10 minutes of worse sleep the night before, and they scored just below. It's kind of random. And those kids turn out just the same. There is no difference in any outcome they measured. And that's been found in many studies with many different methodologies that elite schools seem to not have a big causal effect on how kids turn out. What did you discover about what makes or what predicts a happy marriage? This is another big one. Another big one. A huge one. And it's a little, the data is a little unclear here. So what do we know? What do we know in terms of, you know, if someone's listening, thinking about choosing a partner, what should they look for and, and what should they avoid? What do we know? Yeah. So the best study on this, I believe, is the Samantha Joel study with 11,000 couples. And they use machine learning models to predict what variables correlate with how happy you say you are in your romantic relationship. The number one surprising thing in the study is that it's really, really hard to predict marital happiness. Now, you might have imagined if you had 11,000 couples, you knew everything about them, you just threw the machine learning at them. AI, machine learning, they're so impressive these days. They're doing all these amazing things. You'd say, okay, well, now we know the answer. We know this couple's definitely going to be happy, and we know this couple's definitely going to be miserable, and it's nowhere close to that. It's not like predicting the weather tomorrow. It's like predicting the weather weeks down the road. And I actually talked to Paul Eastwick, is the second author on that study, and he said that he's moving towards an idea that relationships may be chaotic systems, so if they get a little off track... (laughs) They just keep getting off track. And if they're on a good track, they stay on that track or even get better over time. But a slight change in initial conditions will lead to vastly different outcomes. And they've actually, they actually said, can you predict changes in relationship happiness? This relates to that idea that they may be chaotic systems. So let's say you talk to a couple, some of them are happy, some of them are unhappy, and you have all these, this knowledge about them. What interests do they share? What religious background do they have? what values they have, do they want kids, what are their political views, and you want to predict future happiness, it is literally impossible to predict changes in happiness. So a happy couple is more likely to be happy in the future. An unhappy couple is more likely to be unhappy in the future. Everything else adds zero predictive power to change in relationships, which has big implications for how we decide whether to stay or go in a relationship. Huge. Because how many of us either have made a decision like this or contemplated making a decision like the following. I'm happy now, but this could never work long-term because you know we come from different backgrounds, uh, problems are bound to arise down the road. Or the flip side, unhappy now, but I got to give this a chance because, I mean, look at us on paper. And I think the data categorically rejects that mindset. No, it almost sounds tautological, you know, where it's like, well, okay, the best predictor of future happiness is present happiness, but it's really not. What it suggests is that if you're not happy now, it's not a good bet to assume that you'll somehow be happy later, because whatever the reasons are for the present unhappiness will likely persist in the future. It's not just the best predictor, the only predictor. There's just nothing else in the data. So it's not 100%. You could be happy now and something changes, you end up unhappy. But the problem is the mistake we make is looking at a relationship on paper once we're already in that relationship. So once you're in the relationship, the paper kind of gets thrown out the window. And now it's just, am I happy here? Do we tend to overrate 
attractiveness, you know, sexual taste or finding someone who shares our values or hobbies or whatever, to, you know, just similarity to oneself, I guess. So those are three, I would say, pretty conventional, like popular, you know, traits that people look for. Does the data tell us that those things are overvalued a little bit? Yeah, those traits tend to have basically no correlation with how happy you are with your partner, even though they are the things we look for. None. Yeah, pretty close to none. Uh, sharing hobbies, sharing interests, sharing personality traits. They seem to really not predict much in terms of uh, romantic happiness. The thing that predicts happiness, by far the most important predictor of whether you're happy in your romantic relationship is whether you're happy outside your romantic relationship. <laughs> Yeah, that's that was the thing I kind of globbed onto a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Where it's you probably are well advised to not look to your relationship as a source of happiness. If you can find someone who's happy in their own life outside of their relationship, someone who is secure in themselves, that person is likely to be happy in their marriage or in their relationship for the same reasons they're happy outside of it. And if you're just making a bet on, <laughs> on future happiness, that may be a good place to look. Is that a good reading? Yeah, for sure. So your own happiness really matters for how happy you are in a relationship. And then your partner's psychological traits do tend to up the odds, at least a little bit of you being happy. So psychologists have invented all these quizzes and tests. I always found them pretty stupid. Like, do you have a secure attachment style, a growth mindset, conscientiousness? And these things tend to have the most predictive power and much more predictive power if your partner scores high on these tests, if they have a secure attachment style, growth mindset, consciousness, satisfaction with life, you're more likely to be happy with them. And that is much more predictive than they're hot or even they share your same hobbies or interests or psychological traits. So focusing more on those traits would be a, certainly a data-driven approach to one's romantic life. I would say the depressing finding in the book is probably also the least surprising which is that basically being good looking is the most predictable determinant of success in almost every sphere of life. Is it really that simple? It was very depressing. They've done these studies, Alexander Todorov at University of Chicago, he's shown people just pictures of candidates in elections, Senate races, House of Representative races, gubernatorial races. Yeah. And he asked them who looks more competent and whichever one people on average say looks more competent wins about 70% of the races. Just that question. Yeah. And already, the thing that's interesting about that is already these people have been selected to look more competent. Like yeah. generally, Joe Schmo off the street doesn't run for Senate. No other variable has anything like that kind of predictive power too, right? I mean, that's massive. No, I did find it kind of depressing. Yeah. There was a, a little bit of a twist to the research, which I used in my own life, which is that you can vary in how attractive you are. So sometimes you ask people, you show people five different photos of a person and they may be a seven in one photo, but a six in another photo, a five in another photo. Yeah. So I actually use this to my advantage. I said, well, maybe I can use data to find the best version of myself. And I gave myself what I called a nerd makeover to learn the data of what makes me most attractive, basically. <laughs> so how I did it is I create a hundred version of myself. Anybody can do that using the, face app, basically use artificial intelligence. And sometimes I had glasses, no glasses. Sometimes I had a beard, sometimes I had a goatee, sometimes I had a mustache. I changed my hair, shaved head, you know, brown hair, gray hair. I did one with pink hair. 
And then I did market research. I asked people, okay, well, what makes me look most competent? And I found that the only three things influenced my competence. Glasses was a big positive predictor of competence. Beard was a big positive predictor of competence. And pink hair was a big negative predictor of competence, which I probably could have guessed anyway. So basically don't dye my hair pink and wear glasses and a beard and people find me competent. <laughs> well, who among us, Seth? Yeah. But you know, the pink hair, the pink hair may serve you well in another domain, like, you know, the online dating world, right? Because I think everyone will, will guess rightly that being good looking is a good predictor of like, you know, getting attention and getting dates online. But another one is extreme looks. If you're not you know, extraordinarily good looking, you stand a better chance of getting noticed if you do something extreme, like shave your head or have pink hair or like just something that is like distinguishes you from the herd, right? Yeah, that was a study by Christian Rudder using OkCupid data that basically you don't want to be average in dating. If, if everybody finds you a seven out of 10, very few people are gonna respond to your messages. Yeah. If, if most people find you a zero to 10, out of 10, but a select few find you a 10 out of 10, all the people who find you a 10 out of 10 are gonna respond to your messages. Yeah. So I think a mistake a lot of us make in dating is we try to be attractive to everybody. If you get, if you read a standard dating advice manual or uh, in Borat, I think Sasha Baron Cohen goes to like a class on how to be a better dater. And it's all this very conventional <laughs> advice of, you know, wear a collared shirt, yeah. ask about our hobbies, ask about our interests. And I think that kind of gets you in the, in that seven out of 10 to everybody range, which is not necessarily what you want to do. And I found this in my own life where, you know, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody listening to this podcast that people have told me that I'm extremely nerdy. <laughs> and a lot of my friends, particularly my female friends would be like, Seth, maybe you should tone down the nerdiness if you want a girlfriend. And I think I was motivated by Christian Rudder's study to conclude that maybe the opposite is true, that maybe I should tone up my nerdiness, nerd it up. Yeah. Because I'll be a 10 to 10 to the woman who like nerds. And my girlfriend of now two years in four days, she was into nerds. <laughs> so then when we met up, here I was. She, I was the, the 10 out of 10 for her. Yeah. I guess there's a humanist impulse in me that's always going to remain a little skeptical about how much the numbers can really tell us, which is not to say they can't tell us a lot. They can. And there's a lot in this book that is just fascinating on its face, but I think also super instructive and helpful. I think, I guess, in the end, I kind of come back to you know, like the final graph in your book, which I love, and I'm just going to read it. <laughs> you say that the data-driven answer to life is as follows. Be with your love on an 80-degree and sunny day overlooking a beautiful body of water having sex. <laughs> I love that. It's great, man. I'd do that every day if I could. And I know you're not trying to do any grand philosophy in a book like this. That's not what it is. But I guess to the extent that I sounded a skeptical note, I guess part of what I was getting at is I just feel like human beings are just sort of hopelessly contradictory. You know, like if every day was a perfect day, then pretty soon the things that made it perfect 
would cease to satisfy us because there's more to life than pleasure or happiness. And if that's all we had, we'd yearn for something else, for danger, for adventure, for struggle, whatever, right? You know, the sweet is only sweet because of the sour and all that. I agree with it. I just think just about everybody reading my book should probably spend less time than they should doing these simple things that make people happy, yeah. which is kind of what I said with the sex and the beach thing. It's, you know, one of the things I took from, you know, the Mappiness Project was that modern life is kind of tricking us in many ways, yeah. spending most of our time in social media, the leisure activity that gives us least happiness, spending yeah. 60, 70 hours working at jobs we don't like with people we don't like, not spending enough time in nature, that sex on the beach or cousins of sex on the beach, taking a hike with friends yeah. by a lake, spending a day with your romantic partner, not worrying about anything else, spending a day at the beach with your romantic partner. You know, these types of activities that are kind of simple, old fashioned, probably anybody reading my book or listening to this podcast, because podcasts, both podcasts and reading, by the way, rank very low in how much moment to moment enjoyment they give people. Oh, come on, man. Get out of here with that propaganda. Yeah, Podcasts don't make people happy. I think it was pretty low on the list, if I remember correctly. Oh, so, jeez. Anybody who's listened to this podcast, read my book, probably would be happier if they spent at least a little more time doing these simple things that data suggests make people happy. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Not you know, not that you have to just have sex on the beach all day, every day, the rest of your life. Now, look, I'm with you. I don't think that the data can answer any fundamental questions about life, but I think it can tell us a hell of a lot. No, it can't tell us what we should strive for, but it can tell us whether the things we do tend to strive for are actually making us feel the way we think. And learning that is incredibly useful. And you've done a hell of a job putting all that together in this book. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I guess we kind of agree because <laughs> that's how I would sum it up as well. The book is Don't Trust Your Gut. I highly recommend it. This was a ton of fun. Seth Stevens, Davidowitz, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.